If you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, we are going to complete chapter 9 today, the very last paragraph in that chapter, 23 through 28. We're also going to conclude our little mini-series within Hebrews on the blood of the new covenant. This is part three, and it will be the the last in that little mini-series that we are doing. Now, we live pretty close to the Smithsonian, so I'm assuming many of you have probably been there at least once. Uh, If you have not, there's lots of museums there, but one museum in particular is the Museum of Natural History. Now, it's been a very long time since I've been there, but I do remember very clearly that in the Museum of Natural History, there is the Hope Diamond. Many of you have probably heard of this. It's one of the largest diamonds in the world. And it's on display there in the Museum of Natural History. Now, it is on display not like a mural or a painting where it's just on a wall and you just kind of look at it from one spot and then you move on and look to the next thing. The Hope Diamond is actually set in the middle of the room. So not only can you look at it from the front and see the, the necklace that it's set in, but you can actually walk all the way around it and admire its beauty from not just one angle, but from all around. Now, you may have noticed that Nathan and I have been talking a lot in the past few weeks about the blood of Christ, and also even further back, we've been talking about the high priestly ministry of Christ. Now, I hope you don't get tired of that, because first of all, we're just following what the text says. But second of all, what what the author of Hebrews is doing is he just cannot get over how amazing Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is. And what he is doing is he's holding up what Jesus has done like a precious diamond for us to see. And even though he's talking again and again about it, he's just, he's taking that diamond and showing us each different facet of it so that we can admire its beauty, not just from not just from one way, but we can, we can admire its beauty from different angles and see it in different ways. The author simply cannot get over his awe at Jesus shedding his own blood on the cross and what that means for his people. So let's look at another facet of this precious stone of Jesus' sacrifice. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, 
having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given us the pages of scripture that we can know are your words to us. They tell us about you and they reveal you to us. So Father, as we, as we take these few moments to explore this passage, would you speak to us, please? Father, speak to us, teach us, show us the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice and his high priestly ministry. Father God, I pray that you would speak through me this morning and that I would be behind the cross. Father, may we honor you and glory and glorify you as we dig into your word this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, in this paragraph, when we look at the entirety of the paragraph, there is one thing that's going to stand out to us more than any other thing, and that's that Jesus pouring out of his own blood is the perfect and complete sacrifice to fully pay for our sin. Jesus' pouring out of his own blood is the perfect and complete sacrifice to fully pay for our sin. And we'll see that in three different ways. First, we'll see how Jesus' blood is the purifying blood sacrifice. We'll see how his blood is the complete blood sacrifice. And then last, we'll see how his blood is the sure blood sacrifice. But first, it is the purifying blood sacrifice. Looking in it at verse 23, thus, many of your translations will say therefore, and you guys have heard me preach enough that I'm always going to point out that stuff. We have got to see what the therefore is there for, or what the thus is there for. And it should always, in this case, we should be reminded of a couple of things. We should be reminded that in the previous paragraph, and as Nathan explained last week, that blood was necessary in the Old Covenant. Blood was necessary in order to forgive sin, period. And that's not just something that started in the Old Covenant. Remember Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. After they had sinned, they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves for themselves, but when they left the garden, they were no longer clothed in fig leaves. They were clothed in skins. God slayed an animal so that he could clothe the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve as they left the garden. And so the shedding of blood for the coverings of sins began then and then continued throughout the giving of the law and then the rites of the old covenant. So thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Remember, we're talking about the the tabernacle and later the temple. This was the place where worship occurred in the Old Covenant. 
And it was the representation of God's presence with his people. And what's interesting about this is it talks about these things being purified. If we look in the Old Testament, it's not because those objects themselves were sinful or those objects themselves had issues. Leviticus 16.16 says, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. Later in verse Leviticus 16.19, it says, And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And it's important for us to realize it wasn't the tabernacle didn't have its own sins. The temple didn't have its own sins that needed to be purified. It needed to be purified because the people who were worshiping there, the priests and all the people, they were unclean. They were sinful. <clears throat> they needed to be purified. They had tainted the tabernacle with their presence and it had to be purified with blood. The next part of the verse says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. See, the author wants us and his audience then to know and to see that if that had to happen for the old covenant and the old tabernacle and the thing that was meant to represent God's presence but was just a shadow and a copy this institution of worship of God that was just, just a, a preview of the better things to come, what in the world do you think would suffice for this better covenant? These were good copies. This was a good shadow of the great to come. And the good stuff that wasn't the best had serious sacrifices. And what the, would the real thing require? Well, it's Jesus' sacrifice. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Now let's be clear. Heaven, the throne room, the very presence of God does not need to be cleansed. God is there, his presence is there, and therefore it is holy. There's no impurity there. And let's also be clear that Jesus before he was incarnated in, in Palestine, before he was in Mary's womb, he had every right to be in that presence of God because he is holy himself. He is God the Son. He didn't need to do anything to get himself into heaven, into the presence of God because he was already there. He was already pure and holy and righteous in and of himself because he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. So what does need to be purified in the heavenly places? What does Jesus pour out his blood to purify? Well, who does he represent? Who does he, in a sense, bring with him into that place? He brings us. The very last phrase on that, in that passage is that he, he goes there on our behalf. We must be purified. We must be cleansed or we cannot be in the presence of God. And yet Jesus invites us in. Earlier in Hebrews 4, it says, 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And later in chapter 10, the author will tell us that we should draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus brings us in and invites us into the presence of God and we can only draw near because we have been cleansed with the blood of Jesus. We have been purified with the pure water of Jesus' blood poured out on us from his very own body. And it's important for us to remember that the, the problem, that the issue is us. We are wicked sinners. We are selfish and vile, impure. That's us. We're sinners from birth and sinners by our very nature. And one way for, that we need to be careful, especially in, in our culture and our days, is there's, there's a lot of finger pointing going on right now in our world. And lots of people liking to point out the sin in others. And really, that's been happening since, since Adam and Eve. No, it wasn't me. It was the, the woman you gave me. Well, in some sense, as we, as we point fingers, everybody, no matter what they're doing, everybody in some way is right. Because we're all the problem. Each and every one of us is a, is a sinner. Each and every one of us are the issue, and it's our sin that separates us from God. None of us, no matter the worldview, no matter anything, Republican, Democrat, Russian, British, American, man, woman, can stand in the presence of God on our own merit. Our sin makes us impure. We can't fix it ourselves. We have to be washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus by his shed blood, or we will be lost and dead in our sins for all of eternity. And that's sobering, but let's not for, forget that last phrase in that verse. That Jesus is there in the presence of God on our behalf. In the very presence of his Father on our behalf. Church, this should astound and amaze us Jesus is the pure and perfect one. He is advocating for us, for those who are his followers. And it doesn't matter how clean or how dirty our lives have been in comparison to the holiness of God. We are wretches. Yet Jesus, even though we are sinful and sick and impure, he purifies us and is our advocate and represents us, appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. And Jesus' blood is also the complete 
blood sacrifice. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Now we need to go back again and look at the Old Testament law. The high priest was required once a year, year after year, to go into the most holy place and to bring blood. He had to slaughter an animal in order to bring blood into the most holy place to pay for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, but also for his own sin. Every year a goat died. Every year the priest took the blood in. But what that priest did was not enough. It could never be enough because he had to keep doing it year after year after year after year. It was never finished. More sins were committed. More goats were slaughtered. More imperfections. More rebellions. More blood. But that is not what Jesus did. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Guys, our sin is serious. We need to grasp that. Our sin is serious because if, if somehow Jesus' sacrifice was lacking in any way whatsoever, the text tells us he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. If there was some limitation to how valuable Jesus' sacrifice was, then from day one until now, Jesus would have to be dying, buried, resurrected, and coming back again over and over and over and over. Our sins, our world full of sin and that evil is that serious that, that if there was any limitation, that is what would have to happen. Thank goodness that's not the case. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus dealt with sin once and for all. His sacrifice is complete and he doesn't have to do it again. Jesus didn't leave anything on the field. He didn't leave anything on the table. And notice that it doesn't just say that he dealt with sins, but he dealt with sin. Sin itself dealt with. The fangs of the snake Jesus pulled out at the cross. Now, for those who trust in Christ, even though we still struggle with our sin and temptation now, what we need to realize is that ultimately, we are righteous. Those who have faith in Christ are righteous in the sight of God because Jesus dealt with our sin when he was nailed to the cross. Jesus' sacrifice is powerful. None of our sins are not paid for if we trust in him. Brothers and sisters in this Christ, this gives us so much hope. We don't have to look over our shoulder and wonder if God is standing there with a sword just ready to swipe us as soon as we mess up. If we are in Christ, we have been completely bought and paid for every sin we committed, every sin that we might commit today, yesterday, or tomorrow has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. He doesn't have to go back and suffer again because you messed up yesterday, you might mess up today, or you might mess up tomorrow. He has done it all. 
Now, we need to be careful because it's not a license to sin. What does Paul say in Romans? Should, should I get, continue on in sinning so that grace may abound more? By no means. By no means should we continue sinning. Instead, we should be, realize that we are now free. We're free to be in a relationship that we couldn't be in before. And we're free not only that, but we're free, as Hebrews says earlier in chapter 9, to serve the living God. Something we could not do before. Jesus' blood is precious and valuable beyond compare. One shedding of his blood atoned for the sins of many. Guys, this isn't the shedding of the blood of a great human being. It's not the shedding of blood of an angelic being. It's the blood of the Son of God. It is the very blood of God himself. There is no more precious commodity in all of existence than the blood of Jesus. It's, it's interesting. I, I love Marvel movies. And one of the movies that came out several years ago was one of the Iron Man movies. And, and in it, after a scene where the villain has actually kind of exposed a weakness of the hero, the villain looks at the hero and tells him, if you can make God bleed, people will cease to believe in him. Well, that's not true. <laughs> that's the complete opposite of the truth. Because God has bled for us, we can believe in him. We can have a relationship with him. Thank God that God did bleed for us. Amen. Now here's another, another side note that I think is important for us. And the author has been persuading his hearers, not just in this section, but the past few sections with all his might. He's been trying to persuade them that if they put their faith in the ability of the priests of the old covenant, they're putting their faith in the wrong place. They're putting their faith in the wrong person. Jesus is the new and great high priest that saves, not, not the guys from the old covenant priesthood. Now, I, don't, I don't think for those of us who are believers, we are tempted to put our faith in someone other than Christ, although we, honestly, we may confuse ourselves with being good enough sometimes, but, but we know Jesus is the only one who can save us. But are we tempted to ever think that something else other than Christ can save others, can save our neighborhoods, our cities, the people who live in them, our nation? Hopefully not. But we got to be careful. We got to be real careful. Jesus is the only one who saves. Jesus is the only one who's going to make this world new again. It is only through the gospel message of Jesus Christ that revival of any sort comes. Brothers and sisters, if we are looking for a moral revival to happen in our cities and our neighborhoods, and it's not based in the truths of Scripture about the preaching of Jesus crucified, buried, risen again, ascended to heaven and one day coming back again, if we're, not, if we're not trusting in that to be the basis of our revival, we're trusting in the wrong thing. Charles Spurgeon said, Christian men and women, nothing but the gospel can sweep away the social evil. 
Vices are like vipers. And only the voice of Jesus can drive them out of the land. The gospel is the great broom with which to cleanse the filthiness of this city. And nothing else will avail. Let's not put our faith in political entities or or ideas to rescue our neighborhoods and our cities and the people in them from moral decay. Let's instead put our faith in Jesus. Let's proclaim him to our neighbors and to our city and to our nation. And let's pray to him that the same work that he has done in us, he would do in them as well to the praise of his glorious name. Because there's no other name that saves and saves completely. Lastly, Jesus' sacrifice is the sure blood sacrifice. And just as is it appointed for men to die once. Folks, we may live in the 21st century. We may live in an extremely technologically advanced society. We may live in a very medically advanced society. We may know, because of science, all the best diets that we need to have, all the best vitamins that we need to take, all the exercise that we need to do. But guess what? 100% of people who diet and exercise die. Um, I actually had a friend of mine in Kentucky, one of the, the, he had to leave and went to pastor a church in Georgia, but one of the last things I remember him saying uh, strangely enough to everybody in the youth group that he was pastoring is that 100% of people who diet, die. Um, now, let, let me hear this. Kids, especially in the room, hear this. Just because I say that, that does not mean you need to not take your vitamins. You need to take your vitamins. You need to eat your broccoli. Number one, because your parents tell them to and you need to obey them. But it's also very, very good for us to be healthy. But the truth is, we are all going to die at some point. Unless your name is Enoch or Elijah, or if Jesus comes back, you are going to die. We are all going to pass away. That is sure. That is a sure thing. Every single one of us is subject to the curse of Genesis 3. We came from dust and we will return to dust. The next part, and after that comes judgment. Well, that's not popular right now. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will one day stand before the Lord and have to give an account for the lives we were given by God and how we spend our days. Everybody. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Now, both of these things are incredibly true. They are incredibly weighty statements by the author of Hebrews. Interestingly enough, that is not his point at all. He's actually just using these as a metaphor. These things are sure. These things, you can count on these things to happen 125%. He's saying that just as you can count on those things to happen, This is what you can also count on. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. 
As sure as the author of Hebrews is of death and judgment, he is also sure that Jesus will come again. Now, he came first to bear sins. He came to be the suffering servant. And actually, this passage kind of alludes to Isaiah 53, the great song of the suffering servant, which says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's what he came for the first time. That's what he did the first time. But listen to how, how he's coming back. Listen to how sure we can be of the effectiveness of his sacrifice for those who repent and trust in him in faith to save them. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin. What? Hear that again. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Why in the world does Jesus not have to deal with sin when he comes back? Isn't the world still very messed up? Aren't we still pretty messed up? Aren't we still struggling with sin every day? Aren't we still stumbling and falling as believers in Christ in our walk with him? Yeah. But remember, Jesus dealt with all of our sin on the cross. All of it. He didn't leave anything left to be done. Remember, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. He's put it away by the sacrifice of himself. Let's be sure that Jesus will come again. And let us be sure that he has so much dealt with our sin on the cross, he doesn't have any mop-up work left to do. He doesn't have to spend any more of his blood to deal with our sin. He's done it all. He's done it. He accomplished the work the Father had given to bear the iniquities of many and to make many who were sinners to be counted fully righteous before God. Jesus' sacrifice is the perfect and complete offering to bring to the Father to deal with our sin. We are great sinners, but we have a great Savior. And he purifies us with his blood. He saves us completely and he surely saves those who come to him in faith and repentance. And one day he is coming back. What is he coming back to do? To save those who are eagerly awaiting, waiting for him. You know, there's my least favorite country singer is Kenny Chesney, and some of you may argue with that, but here's one of the reasons why. He wrote a song a while ago that said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Brothers and sisters, that absolutely cannot be us. That cannot be us. We as believers who have been washed in the blood of our Savior should always be looking and ready for Jesus to come back. 
Now, I realize we live in a world that tries to sell us a lot about how great this world is. It's a lie. And if you need to realize it's a lie, turn on the news. Or even more so, just have a conversation with somebody. Ask them about their life story and really think about how them living in a world tainted with sin has caused them pain and suffering. I was just telling Nathan, I came home from a a haircut uh, this week and the lady who cut my hair, I, I sat and wept as I came home from church just to hear what that lady has been through in her life. Guys, all of creation is groaning under our sin. Can we groan along with creation? Can we grieve over our sin and the evil we see in our own hearts and all around us? And can we say with the apostle and like the song we sang earlier, come Lord Jesus. Let me close with these words from Matthew Henry. It is the distinguishing character of true believers that they are looking for Christ. They look to him by faith They look for him by hope and holy desires. They look for him in every duty, in every ordinance, in every providence now, and they expect his second coming and are preparing for it. And though it will be sudden destruction to the rest of the world who scoff at the report of it, it will be eternal salvation to those who look for it. Look for Jesus, let us eagerly await his return to rescue us. Let's pray.